Well, let's pray together. Almighty Father, creator and sustainer of the universe, and our gentle, loving Dad, who runs to us with arms open wide simply to be with us. Father, we stand in awe of your beauty and majesty, and at the same time, we're struck by your closeness and the intimacy that you desire to have with us. You are mighty, you are strong. And there is truly nothing that you cannot do, including reaching down and meeting us right where we're at. And Father, that's what we need. We need you right here with us. Because if you don't go with us, if you're not here with us, there's no point us going anywhere. There's no point um, in all the things that we are doing for you. Um, If you're not with us each and every step of our lives, we will go astray. We will stumble, and we are guaranteed to end up on the path to not life. So meet us here, Father, we ask, with arms open wide. Meet each one of us in the place that we find ourselves, and turn that place into a place of encounter with you. Refresh us, Father, we ask, with your presence. Holy Spirit, we invite you to come and touch us afresh with your aliveness. You who can awake the dry bones, we ask you to awake our dry hearts, to revive our tired spirits and our fatigued souls. We ask that you would wash away the burdens that we and others have placed upon ourselves. We ask that you would cleanse our minds of the garbage that we have filled them with this week. The wrong desires and the wrong priorities the chasing after things which are not of you. We ask that you would reorder those priorities, that you would reorder our affections. Jesus, you are the way, you are the truth and the life, and you have made a way for us to have life by bringing us back into relationship with the Father. Draw us, we ask, into the ways of life, into your ways of life over and over again. We, your gathered people, praise and exalt and lift high your precious and holy name this morning. Amen. Well, speaking of journeys into the unknown, Brian will be continuing his series in the life of Joseph, who has just gone on a rather unpleasant journey himself, both literally from the promised land to Egypt um, and also Uh, I suppose metaphorically, from being family into slavery and sold into slavery by his very own brothers. And uh, if you thought it couldn't get any worse, it is about to get worse, so uh, we will uh, hear more on that. But before we do so, uh, our scripture reading this morning is a uh, bright hope of encouragement um, on the blessings of the person who walks righteously Um, and perhaps a word on where Joseph's trajectory will, uh, in fact, end up. So hear the words of Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water, 
that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the ways of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Thank you, Joel. And before I begin, it's just a reminder for uh, regarding young children that this message, like last week, has some mature themes. So you might take parents take note of that. Let's pray together as we come to the Lord's scriptures. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that you are our creator and redeemer, that you are Lord of all, supremely sovereign, and yet hidden so often. We thank you most of all that you are pledged to be with us, to the fulfillment of the age, as we make disciples of all nations. Enlighten the eyes of our heart now. Stir us by the holy example of a saint who followed you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the title of my text is, Where is God in Times of Betrayal? One of the greatest difficulties in the Christian life is bridging the gap between the promises of God on the one hand and life's realities on the other. One of the foundational promises that we celebrate is that the Lord is with us. And this bedrock truth has been a popular form of liturgical blessing throughout the ages. The Lord be with you, followed by, and with thy spirit. Amen. Parents pray this over their children as they launch them off on a weekend trip or to college or to a foreign land. But what happens when you pray to God for your children and a tragedy occurs? Or to be with you at work and you are laid off? Or to be with you in your marriage and you end up divorced? Or to be with you in your cancer treatments and they're not successful? What then? When reality hits, we are forced to re-examine whether God really is with us. And if he is, to what end? What can we expect if he is indeed with us? Well, this is the theme our text addresses as we find Jacob's favorite son, Joseph, sold into slavery and taken to Egypt. Although it's going to be decades before the father sees the son again, the narrator boldly asserts that God is with Joseph. And then he puts the theology to the extreme test to see if it can hold up under the tragic tale of betrayal. And in the end, he leaves us with a refined understanding of how the Lord is indeed with us. So we begin at verse 1 of chapter 39. Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt... And Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. <clears throat> well, after Joseph's brothers sold him to the Ishmaelite traders, he was taken to Egypt where again he was sold to a high-ranking Egyptian official. Think of the tension going on in this young man who had dreams of prominence. 
but now he finds himself transported hundreds of miles away from home and then sold as a slave. Had Joseph lost confidence in the dreams he had treasured in his heart? Or did he begin to doubt God's love that seemed to turn a blind eye to evil and withhold his saving power? Well, verse 2. The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man. He was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw the Lord was with him, and the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. You know, it's rare in biblical narrative that a theological statement frames the story. More often than not, the narrator plays his cards close to the vest. And we must carefully deduce theological meaning from a more sophisticated and covert methods of expression. But here, the narrator lays all his cards on the table, repeating his thesis four times. The opening phrase, the Lord was with Joseph, summarizes all that follows so that there'll be no mistaking the source of Joseph's success. Joseph will thrive in Egypt like a fertile tree whose fruit is prolific for no other reason than the Lord's unrestrained presence. In his research on the promise, I am with you, Donald Gallant observes that it was originally given to Israel's leaders before an almost impossible undertaking. And that it is not a blessing in general, not simply reassurance that all is well, but is a promise of help in times of great danger or when setting out on an undertaking that seems very likely to fail. When God promised to be with Jacob until he returned to Bethel, it heightened the fact that Jacob's journey was going to be fraught with peril and danger, but that God would not only overcome the obstacles, he would make Jacob very fruitful in the process. In like manner, God will be with Joseph in a very dangerous situation with the odds of his success slim at best. But despite the odds, God's hand will prevail. Verse 4. So Joseph found favor in, the sight, in his sight and attended him, and he made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. From the time that he made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had and in house and field, so that he left all that he had in Joseph's charge. Because of him, he had no concern about anything but the food that he ate. You could hear that word all five times. Well, after elevating Joseph to be his personal attendant, there was such a comprehensive blessing to all that Joseph came in contact with that Potiphar abandoned all his concerns into Joseph's care, except for the food that he ate, which is probably a reference to his private affairs, including his wife. Joseph became the most trusted individual in Egypt as he cared for Potiphar's entire estate. But just as the narrator fills us with an effusive joy for Joseph's rise to power and influence, he adds a rather unsettling note that breaks the perfect harmony of Joseph's divinely favored stewardship. Verse 6b. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance, and after a time his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, 
lie with me. The description of Joseph is identical to that of his mother, Rachel. Each time the beauty of a matriarch was mentioned in the patriarchal narratives, it opened the door to her life either being threatened, as in Sarah and Rebecca, or damaged in the case of Rachel. Now the roles are reversed, and it's the male whose beauty will become the object of lust and danger. In the previous scene, it was Judah's lustful eyes that fell upon what he deemed to be a prostitute. In this scene, it's Potiphar's wife who lifts up her eyes with desire, and her lusts are so strong, she can only manage two words in Hebrew, lie with me, an expression that is never used of marriage. In response, Joseph will issue a breathless response that runs 35 words in Hebrew. The contrast of these two characters could not be more apparent. Verse 8. He refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in his house, and he's put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Well, Joseph doesn't even entertain the temptation, but immediately places a stake in the ground where it belongs. His refusal is as bold as her invitation. As Bruce Walkie states, he concedes nothing to imperial power. He attempts to reason with her in language that makes the crime not only morally indefensible, but a heinous betrayal of his master. At the conclusion, he boldly raises the stakes and he places the whole matter before God, who is the supreme judge of all. Nahum Sarna comments that his moral excellence can be appreciated all the more if one remembers that he is a slave and that sexual promiscuity was perennial feature in all slave societies. Well, hearing his words, we can sense how thankful to God he has become for his deliverance and exaltation, which has given him a new lens to reinterpret the fulfillment of his dreams. He sees Potiphar's magnanimous generosity as God's sovereign hand providing for him just as he did for Adam and Eve, giving them every tree in the Garden of Eden to eat except one. And so it was unthinkable that he would ever use his service to Potiphar for his own advantage. So Joseph illustrates that the cure for lust is a love that transcends sensual desire. Verse 10. And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her, to lie beside her or to be with her. But one day when he went into the house to do his work, none of the men of the house was there in the house. She caught him by his garment saying, lie with me. But he left the garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. Sadly, Joseph's words make no impact on her and just like the devil, she tries to wear him down with repeated solicitation, only now softening her tone to the more innocent behavior of lying beside her. 
Joseph counters by creating stronger boundaries and wisely chooses never to be alone in her presence. Undeterred, Potiphar's wife removes all the slaves in the home, secretly hoping that, with no witnesses present, Joseph might let down his guard and give in. Once the stage is set, Joseph enters what is now an empty house to do his work, and she grabs him. The Hebrew verb kot, tafash, is a violent term. most often used in the context of war when wielding a weapon and further indicates their role reversal. But Joseph will not be taken in. Since this woman will not take no for an answer, he does the only thing he can do, he runs. The Apostle Paul, I think, memorialized of Joseph's action is exemplary. He writes, flee immortality, immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral sins against his own body. Or do you not know your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You're not your own. You're bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. And then 1 Corinthians 10. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. What a wonderful example Joseph is in the midst of a depraved family and a promiscuous society. Joseph demonstrates that the sins of one generation do not have to be visited on the next And his example sets the bar, his commitment to sexual purity for all who are in Christ, and it becomes a non-negotiable prerequisite for leaders in the church. Sadly, our euphoria doesn't last long, however. Potiphar's wife, humiliated by Joseph's refusals, retaliates by fabricating witnesses and accuses Joseph of assault. Verse 13. And as soon as she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled out of the house, she called to the men of her household and said to them, See, he has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. He came in to me to lie with me, and I cried out with a loud voice. And as soon as he heard that I lifted up my voice and cried out, he left his garment beside me and fled and got out of the house. Well, now that Joseph has fled the scene, Potiphar's wife will make good use of the cloak he left behind. She quickly gathers all the servants, and attempting to align them with her cause, she speaks in derogatory tones, not just about Joseph, but also her husband, whose name she will not even pronounce. It is their master whom she blames as bringing in this despicable Hebrew to mock them. With extreme craft, she plays every card in her hand. First, she plays on their jealousy of Joseph. Then their resentment toward their master. And her innocence, it was the scream that was not heard. And finally, the damning evidence. It's an open and shut case. 
Then before Potiphar gets home, she rearranges the evidence to make her case appear all the more convincing. For a second time, Joseph will be betrayed by his cloak. Verse 16. Then she laid up his garment by her until his master came home. And she told him the same story, saying, The Hebrew servant... The one you have brought among us came in to me to laugh at me. But as soon as I lifted up my voice and cried, he left the garment beside me and fled out of the house. <clears throat> well, after all the workers leave, she takes the garment that she had ripped off Joseph's body, and then carefully lays it beside her on the bed. <clears throat> when Potiphar arrives at home, she lashes at him with a verbal tirade, blaming him for bringing this Hebrew into their home to mock her. She claims that she did the proper thing by screaming, and although no one heard it, it scared Joseph and he ran. And finally, she presents the condemning evidence. Now, it doesn't take long to figure out that this is not a healthy marriage, and this is probably not the first time she made advances on one of her slaves. But no slave had ever reached this kind of prominence, and so her attack is a direct accusation against her husband, for whom she seems to have little respect. Verse 19. As soon as his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, this is the way your servant treated me. His anger was kindled. And Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in prison. Well, at first glance, we might think that Potiphar was furious with Joseph, but a more careful reading suggests his anger was directed at his wife, a wife he knew all too well. With public opinion on her side and the hard evidence lying on her bed, he has no choice but to take action against Joseph. That he was reluctant to do so is confirmed by the fact that Joseph is not given the death penalty, the normal punishment for adulterers. And he is placed in the most comfortable prison under the king's care. This is the best he can do, given his hands are tied. <clears throat> well, for Joseph, it looks as if his integrity has secured him no lasting reward, and that once again, the favoritism he once enjoyed has been used against him. For a second time, Joseph finds himself in a pit. <clears throat> but just as quickly as our hopes are dashed, the narrator turns the light on God's providence. It's clear as day. For God, not man or woman, will have the last word. Verse 21. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. Well, the final scene reiterates the theological truth it opened with, that the Lord was with Joseph this time with the added emphasis of the Lord's steadfast, loyal, covenantal love. 
Though Joseph is betrayed a second time, God remains faithful to his oath to be with him, causing him to flourish in a very dark place. It didn't take long for the chief jailer to recognize what a find he had in Joseph, and he imitates Potiphar's actions at the beginning of the chapter. Though the breadth of his influence is drastically reduced, Joseph once again rises to the top of the heap and brings a richness and vitality to whomever and whatever he touches. The chief jailer even felt no need to concern himself with anything that he had placed under his care. There are no employee reviews uh, of any kind. God indeed has the last word, causing Joseph to flourish despite his circumstances. Well, that is our story. And the question is then, the Lord was with Joseph. Is the Lord with you? And what is our role in this relationship of the Lord being with us? And what expectations can we expect as we go about the Lord's tasks? Well, in stark contrast to Judah in chapter 38, Joseph demonstrates commitment to the Lord by overcoming his sexual desire amid fierce, relentless temptation. And when a young man masters his sexual desire, he masters every desire, which makes him able to lead. Joseph's passion for purity was fueled by his dreams and the elation he felt as God was beginning to fulfill them. In response to Joseph's unwavering commitment, the Lord demonstrated his covenantal love to be with Joseph, granting him success in every circumstance. The two go hand in hand in a reciprocal relationship. You can't have one without the other. And Psalm 1 displays the dynamics of this human, uh, divine human relationship. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, and in the way of sinners he does not stand, and in the seat of scoffers he does not sit. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. So the poet's strong aversion to evil is the direct result of his affections, his delights, that are transformed by constantly feeding day and night on God's word. Therefore, he prospers in all that he does because the Lord is with him. Therefore, this relationship is reciprocal. Secondly, um, does God give us the promise like he did Joseph? Well, we saw that the original context of the promise, I will be with you, was the promise given to Israel's leaders when facing extreme danger and overwhelming odds, when called to serve God's purposes. In a national crisis, no more encouraging words could be given than, fear not, for I am with you. It was then the people of God knew for certain that their leader would be equipped with God's presence to carry out the task against all odds. God was faithful in upholding his promise to Moses, Joshua, Caleb, Samuel, David, Solomon, Hezekiah, and all the prophets. As the capstone of the promise, Isaiah promised that a son would be born whose name, Emmanuel, means the Lord is with us, 
And he would embody this promise for all God's people. At the birth of Jesus, the angel announced to Joseph that Jesus was Emmanuel. And his, and his resurrection, Jesus conveyed that promise to all his disciples. When he wrote, or when he said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded with you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end, or the word completion or fulfillment of the age. So the task for which God will be with us is to make disciples. Everything else is secondary. If you are a follower of Christ, you have been equipped with spiritual gifts to contribute to this process in various ways. And we can be certain that if we follow him and give ourselves to this task, we will be just as successful in our age as Joseph was in Potiphar's house. Everything in our lives must be severe, subservient to this one agenda, from parenting to planting churches, from software to hardware, from the post office to the hospital. It's all about training the next generation to be followers of Jesus. Well, finally then, what can we expect as we devote ourselves to this purpose? Well, in chapter 38, Judah does everything morally wrong. He repents and lives in freedom. In chapter 39, Joseph does everything right and is subject to betrayal and ends up in prison. So the fact that the Lord is with Joseph does not spare him from danger and peril and suffering, but it causes him to thrive in those settings. Bruce Walkey writes, The pattern of exaltation, humiliation, and exaltation experienced by Joseph will be worked out in the Israelites' life in Egypt. And above all, the movement from exaltation to humiliation to exaltation foreshadows the career of the Son of God. Believers have an exemplar by which to interpret their experiences. They are assured that ultimately, God controls history. So we must understand that our task of disciple-making is fraught with danger and at times may appear impossible against prevailing imperial or secular powers. Like Joseph, we may find ourselves betrayed or placed in confinement by a pandemic where we feel limited or forgotten. But no matter what the environment or circumstance, our Lord will be with us and will make us fruitful in the divine task. If the book of Acts is any indicator, the more the church suffered, the more effective was its witness and the more plentiful its disciples. And when her most effective leader was confined to prison under false accusation, he flourished because the Lord was with him, transforming his prison cell into a scriptorium for much of the New Testament. And to bring the matter closer to home, I ask a dear friend of mine in our congregation to share how the Lord has been with her during the pandemic and suffering very difficult health issues. And this is what she wrote. For many years, health issues have made attending Sunday services and church events a challenge for me. So it was disheartening when the pandemic hit 
and my doctor urged me to remain at home for the duration except for walks. While I envisioned months of bleak seclusion, God was with me and transformed this year of isolation in ways that I never could have imagined. For the past 13 months, it has been a joy to participate in a weekly online Bible study with Compass, a wonderfully quirky group of creative young techies whose off-the-wall humor matches my own. Although we are a generation apart, our time of fellowship is the high point of my week and is always filled with laughter. Recently, I was quite ill and confined to bed for several weeks. Despite that, I continued with our online discussions, except for one session when I was simply too weak to listen in. While recuperating, I began instant messaging a few members individually, which allowed us to go deeper, one-on-one, -on -one, and strengthen our bonds of friendship. Instead of becoming mired in a pit of despair this year, God graciously opened my eyes to the many ways in which I might reach out and connect with others, even with the constraints of pandemic isolation. Along with Compass and live streaming Sunday services, I've been Zooming with a weekly prayer group, an evening women's Bible study, and a Sunday afternoon fellowship that was become deeply meaningful. This is the most connected I've ever been with our church body in years. These online opportunities have really kicked open the door for shut-ins, older folks who are driving less, friends on the mission field and former PBCers who have retired and moved out of the area. <clears throat> Amid this breathtaking pandemic, I rejoice to see that God who is with us continues to reveal his countless blessings through his palpable presence and provision. May the Lord be with you all. Amen. Well, I hope when we resume our uh, in-service gathering in May that we'll hear from you as well of how the Lord has been with you in the midst of the pandemic. Amen. Love of the Father enfold us. The wisdom of the Son enlighten us. And the fire of the Spirit kindle us. And may the blessing of our Lord God come down upon us and remain with us always, for we're no longer slaves of fear. We are the children of God. Amen, and God bless you.